Hello and welcome to the Flower Pot podcast from the National Botanic Garden of Wales. My name is Bruce Langridge. I'm the Head of Interpretation here. And these podcasts I've been doing are really trying to help you understand what a botanic garden is about. And every week I bring along a guest who I chat to and they all have come in with their sort of different disciplines and angles. And this week I'm speaking to an artist called Carolina Fitzthumb. Is that Have I said that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, Caroline is uh, from Austria, so my Lancastrian way of saying it is okay. <laughs> and I'm going to be speaking to Carolina today about why we work with artists in botanic gardens and what an artist can get from us and what we can get from an artist. And I've known Carolina now for about two or three years, and you've visited the gardens about two or three times, I think, mm. in that time. And now... I'm going to introduce you as an interdisciplinary <laughs> artist. For a lot of people go, oh, what does that mean? What, yeah. what, how do you, what does that mean? Well, Thanks, Bruce. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, um, so I, like you say, I'm working as an interdisciplinary artist, meaning that I work with different media, which in my case is performance, installation, textiles and film. So um, it might be worth mentioning that I've got a background in bespoke tailoring. So I oh, so you've shown me the pictures, haven't you, of you as a, a seamstress is the right yes, way? Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's yeah. right. So I went to a very traditional um, Viennese bespoke tailoring school um, and then I followed on with a one-year masterclass for haute couture tailoring. So I was trained in, you know, making garments by hand for at least 200 hours. And we had classes like textile chemistry, pattern making, and all sorts of textile crafts. So this forms kind of the base of my of my practice and going through the world in general, I think. Um, and then I went to, to Bath Spa University to do a BA in contemporary arts practice where I got trained in ceramics and sculpture, film and photography, and mixed media textiles. So I think, you know, this was the kind of approach to a more experimental way of working. And uh, like I said, the, the textile background forms kind of the red thread throughout my practice. Okay. But depending on the, the, the theme I'm working with, I, I would always choose, you know, a different medium to work with. Okay, because sometimes people, I say to people, oh, I've got an artist visiting, and they, they often say to me, oh, what do they paint? <laughs> so to a lot exactly. of people, they think yeah. about just being about painting. Exactly. But for uh, an artist like yourself and uh, several other artists we've worked with over the years, the one thing I've really enjoyed working with you uh, is about the way you see the world. It's very different. You you look for interconnections. You don't just look down one uh, kind of line. You're always looking for different ways of expressing yourself and looking exactly, at here. Exactly, yeah. I think I'm looking for the connections between things, like you say, you know, for the for the bigger for the bigger connection. I do enjoy, for instance, sitting in the forest, staring at the ground for hours, you know, watching the little actions that are going on down there. But in a way, I kind of see it in a bigger picture, like the whole ecology of this. How is it all connected? This is what fascinates me enormously. Um, and so also with, with the medium, you know, working across different media makes me realize I'm much more flexible in kind of bringing in different approaches and different ways of working, which is, yeah, very useful. So someone like me, normally, I just have words, which is either spoken mm. word or written word, and I can only express things in a certain way there. An artist can bring in all sorts of different ways to get people to, cons- to look at the natural world 
in a way which is very hard to express in words. And again, a lot of people, they get bored with just reading words. They, they enjoy the idea of seeing something, hearing something, watching something. Mm. From from an interdisciplinary artist, right? yeah, 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 exactly. But I also, you know, like you say, I'm I'm an interdisciplinary artist. I also don't really like attaching this label to myself. Okay, you know, I don't like to call myself an artist because I I am who I am. You know, I just <laughs> do the things I love doing. Yeah, um, and I have a great passion. Always had a great passion about the natural world, the natural sciences. I never went to do a degree in the natural sciences, but I think again, this gives me a different perspective towards things and maybe a different approach and a different angle to to understand the whole processes that are you know that that make the whole world and make the whole yeah what what first brought you to the botanic garden here in wales yeah so um the i think the first connection was back in 2021 Mm -hmm. and this was a, a collaborative um uh approach um with a fellow artist sarah reese um but it was only this year um, between February and March, when I came to to live and work here at the garden for a two month period, that I really started working with the gardens collection, the library, and all the people who who, are, who work here. And for me, it was always important to you know, and this is probably the, the the entire approach in my practice is a very slow one. You know, I don't want to rush things. I I want to give things time to evolve and to grow into something bigger. So when I came here, I just wanted to have enough time to to understand the collection, see what's here, um, understand the research that is going on, you know, past and present uh, research projects, as well as getting to know the people who are, who are, you know, who I'm working alongside with. And, you know, I have to say that from the very first day, I've been so very warmly welcomed and everyone was so supportive and, you know, providing me with all the things I needed to to develop a, a substantial uh, body of research, which I've been working on the past eight months now. So what was your view of what a botanic garden was before you came here? Has it kind of been what you thought it was? Uh, not really. I mean, I've been to many botanic gardens across Europe, especially, but this one is quite unique. I mean, it's you know, it's very relatively young in comparison, but it's so flexible in, in many, many rights. And just the fact that I'm staying in one of the farmhouses which belong to the garden is something so unique, I would say. You know, even my yeah. way to work is like a 20 minute walk across the grounds. And every morning, you know, I'm, I'm greeted by, by the cows, <laughs> which, which are part of the garden and the sheep. You know, this is this is rather unique. And Everyone is rather approachable and, and quite supportive. And yeah, I think it's it's something very special here. Because I've seen how your interest has grown since mm. I first met you. When you first came here, obviously, I, I, I you have a website and I've looked at the, some of the, um, the films that you'd made. Mm. You did this amazing thing with a camera obscura, didn't you? Mm, yeah. Where Which it, for those people who don't understand that, it's like an upside down camera that used to be used in the 1800s. Yeah. It, I don't know. How do it's you It's basically the the very physics of photography, and I've yeah. uh, I've I've had some help kind of construct constructing the camera obscura itself, but um, we've been using like an old telescope lens, and uh, it was part of a of a group exhibition, and it was a performance I did, which was about thirty minutes, and I was uh, doing a live weaving piece, so I was upside down, um, and people, you know, it took quite a while 
for people to understand what is actually going on. And yeah, it's really hard. Yeah, that's... someone there to who is actually performing, um, because um, we were using like a, like a box, like a booth almost, blocked out all the lights and had this camera obscura box with the uh, with the old telescope lens, have, having light bouncing through, and then it was kind of the yeah, kind of me upside down performing inside. Uh, the box. It looked like you were almost like making a spider's web from yeah. when I was trying to work out what was going on there. It gradually, this spider's web got thicker and thicker and thicker. Yeah. Uh, it was really kind of moving, but I wasn't really sure why. So when I first met you, I thought, oh, I like this. Yeah. This person looks intriguing to me. <laughs> and again, anyone who uh, visits well, by the way, who doesn't know what a camera obscura is, if they go to Aberystwyth, I don't know if you've ever been to the camera obscura. Mm, no, I haven't. There's one... Um, it's about half a mile from the town centre. Mm. It's, it's like 19th century device that you can go into this big sort of tower and look at Aberystwyth through, mm. through the camera obscura. It's mm-hmm. great wow, fun. Fantastic. Yeah. but I, I like So that's kind of where I was relating my camera obscura from. Yeah, yeah, there. yeah. And then when I was looking at the sort of work that you'd done, uh, I mean, we have a lot of textile work. I've worked with a lot of textile mm-hmm. artists here, mm-hmm. particularly our Stitching Botanical Group, mm-hmm. particularly Marilyn Caruana. I don't know if you've met Marilyn No, yet. I haven't yet. Oh, what a shame. Yeah. Um, so we've had a lot of uh, uh, people coming here making representations of fungi and um, flowers and uh, even uh, Regency dresses and all that, all uh, using Stitch. Mm-hmm. So again, I kind of like that sort of um, connection there. And you'd also got involved in working with linen or, or mm, linen. Yeah, flax. Flax. Yeah, so yes. this, was, this was a project last year and it's still ongoing. Um, so this was one year after I completed my BA. This is the time when I started developing my own projects and re- research. Um, so I got offered a patch of land of like 30 square meters um, to grow some fiber flax. So linum usitatissimum is the Latin word, um, which means like usitatissimum means like most useful. So this refers to linen as a kind of most useful fiber. I mean, it's the second strongest natural fiber after silk, which is quite astonishing. Um, yeah, and I've been growing this uh, patch of flax and um, it was, you know, the, the final outcome would be the linen thread, which I will use in, in upcoming weaving works. But I think it was the whole process, the whole approach of understanding where this fibre comes from, literally from seed to weave, you know, kind of going through this process. I mean, flax is a very quick growing plant, so it was like three months in total from from planting to kind of harvesting but it's a very long process as well kind of the whole harvesting is by by pulling but then the real work starts yeah <laughs> um it's it's old knowledge and i can see loads of movement at the moment like trying to revive this old knowledge which is absolutely wonderful um, but it's a very labor intensive process and i just like the idea of you know caring for your plants and tending to your plants and spending time. So it's almost like a ritual, you know, it becomes almost like a performance in itself, kind yeah. of weeding and watering and until it comes to the harvest. And now the fibers have been um, have been processed and they will await further spinning and weaving in the end. But uh, I kind of developed uh, various projects and various um, works alongside this kind of growing project. So probably the main one was a film I developed last year. I think you've, you saw it. Oh, there was a magic moment when I... Uh, was it a moth hit a yeah, web? Yeah. My yeah. God. 
This sounds really odd and on a sort of like a podcast. <laughs> but I think, is that film available for people to see? Uh, yes, it is actually. Okay. Like yeah. They can just drop me a line. Or well, just say, if people Google it, what yeah, would they yeah. Google? Well, I think if they go on my website. Go on your website, um, it'll be on there. Just ask me, you know, for the link. It's it's not no longer like publicly available, but if they just drop me a line and I can share the link with them. Okay, because I, that, that was a really magical moment. And this yeah. is, again, this is what I like about you artists. You kind of like, you run with these ideas. You, you've got this thread, a literal thread running mm. through your sort of practice, which takes you to the linen, which certainly for me, I almost feel like linen's for very kind of wealthy people in a way, but it's a, lo- it's a lovely material. Mm, actually, we're not, we're not yeah. used to using it. No. And probably said to you the day that I went to a shop in Harrogate recently, it was mm-hmm. a linen shop, mm-hmm. beautiful bow windows, and with this amazing linen collection with jaw-dropping prices. And there was a there was a pillowcase there, and it was two hundred and thirty pounds yeah. sterling. My I goodness, mean, but... I'm not surprised if you really know the, all the labour that goes into this process. Well, I, I, this is what I get from yeah. you. Yeah, this is what we get from you. But again, you're looking at that from because our culture of using linen is kind of gone in britain yeah and it used to be very big you used to say uh, towns like uh, in in dorset and things like that they yeah. used to grow linen and, and then they used to make lace from all that yeah uh, i don't know about the culture in wales actually do you think there's a linen culture in wales I'm, I'm almost certain i mean by the by the beginning of the 18th century like one out of five agricultural laborers was involved uh, in linen in the linen industry and this is across europe so you know it Crikey. has a huge cultural history it has been a very very important uh crop and then only it it only got replaced when when cotton got more popular and then obviously in the 1920s with all the artificial fibers being you know much quicker to process and much quicker to produce in comparison to the long you know long labor that goes into um producing linen because again when we first met i think we had a probably had a linen conversation mm. and i'm a bit of a wildflower uh, geek and the wildflower i know that's that's linum is linum catharticum which is little fairy flax which mm. you get growing uh, on the seaside and things like that inconceivable that it could be made into uh, linen clearly it can't be because it's a small plant exactly but My, i hadn't yeah. realized it's such an interest again this is what you're bringing here you're bringing us this this kind of different perspective and you're taking us back into culture mm. you're looking at ethnobotany mm. that's a lovely word mm. isn't it? i like I, that I like it as well. you know the, the the old uses of botany and exactly. i think this is and how they shaped culture you know yeah. yeah and like any other artists i've worked with carolina you 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 come up with questions that we don't mm. normally have to answer <laughs> and that leads to really interesting uh, conversations which can sometimes lead serendipitously uh, to something else, like an exhibit or, or some sort of project or something like that. Mm. And just, but just recently, I saw when walking across the garden, I saw you actually have flax growing, but it is the seed flax, so it's not the fiber flax, which is a much uh, shorter plant. Oh, where is it? Yes, it's um, if you just go down um, alongside the great glass house. Yeah. Um, and then towards the right, like towards the entrance, I can show you. Oh. Um, yeah, it, it's it was rather a surprise. When Is it I on saw that boardwalk? Is that what normal it's, business? It's work? mixed with other flowers, but yeah, yeah, I can show you, and it's quite yeah. nice. You can see the seed capsules, and yeah, right. It's such an elegant, delicate plant, isn't it? Yeah. Now you were really um, our first conversations were very much looking at the interconnectedness of nature. Mm. You know, I have an interest in fungi. I have an interest in wildflowers, and and then 
everything starts to become connected mm. the more you look at it. And again, we both have a, a great love and concern about nature as well. Yeah. And we, we, we want people to be alert to maybe the big issues and maybe we let people know what they can do to maybe help out. And I'm aware that when we first got together, you didn't talk about mosses, but since you've been here, you started to get interested in mosses. Is yeah. this right? Well, you know, I have to confess that I've been obsessed with mosses since I'm a child. Um, so I remember them, you know, very early days when I would walk out into the forest and play with pine cones and the pine cones would be the cows and they would always rest in a bed of moss. <laughs> I was, yeah, like always appreciating the just the texture and the moisture, but most importantly, the smell. I just love the smell of, of, of moist uh, moss. Yeah. just brings me back to childhood, I think. Um, so my my interest uh, at the, uh, about mosses here started when I was working with a 19th century moss herbarium here at the garden. And with a particular focus on one uh, species, which is sphagnum moss, also known as bog moss or peat moss. And, you know, I come from an artistic uh, background or like with an artistic approach. And I was firstly amazed by its aesthetic qualities. I was literally blown away. Um, but the more I researched about it, the more I read about it, I actually got to understand that sphagnum moss creates one of the, the most threatened habitats on our planet, that is peatlands. Yeah. So I think this was really the starting point for a research project that I've been working on the past eight months now. Um, so after my two months uh, research period here at the garden, I went on to, to Finland to do a two-month uh, artist residency. And I also wanted to expand my research. So firstly, I was digesting and kind of, you know, processing everything that I've read and, and researched and learned here at the garden. But then I also wanted to expand my research and, and, and study the, the Finnish moss flora and look at, at the Finnish approach in peatland conservation. Whereabouts in Finland was this? And this was in Jotsa, which is a town um, like three hours north from Helsinki. Okay. Um, mostly industrialized forest, to be honest, um, but still sphagnum was everywhere so yeah. i was like in heaven and then um i went on to uh to austria that's like you say where i'm originally from not only to be reunited with my family but um also to visit one of the last few remaining hochmoore which is like the german word for upland moor and mm -hmm. this was part of a of a nature reserve a nature reserve hohe tauen um and this is i mean just thinking about the numbers, like 90% of peatland has already been lost in Austria is, is pretty shocking, but makes 90%. it even... 90%. yeah, which makes it even more reason to, to fight for what is left, you know? Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think that the past eight months, I, I got to see the world through sphagnum. And, you know, I was led by, by all the knowledge I gained from, from this rather precious plant. And then I came back... At the end of August, I came back to the UK and was invited uh, to Scotland, to the west coast of Scotland, to continue with my research there. Um, and I also got to visit various peatland conservation sites and um, and study the moss flora there. And even um, during a in conversation event with a Scottish sculptor Lucy Gray and uh, author and writer Leonie Charlton. I was kind of officially introducing this research project, which was a really rather nice um, event. 
And then, yeah, like three weeks ago, I came back to the Botanic Gardens and continued working with the with the herbarium. I kind of still see as the, the initial starting point of my research. And the herbarium, for those who don't know what herbarium is, it's a collection of dried plants, isn't mm, it? Yeah. And we have a collection which has been donated to us through uh, various donors, and but a lot of our collection is 19th century. Yes. I know there was a fellow called Cosmo Melville, mm-hmm. who, uh, who we have a large collection of his stuff. Was the sphagnum herbarium part of his collection? Yes, exactly. But it's actually, you know, the, the herbarium is actually uh, comprising various collectors. So, I mean, it is under the name of, of Cosmo Melville, but it's actually so many different uh, collectors who have contributed to it. Well, you've got, you got a sample in front of us here, which is yes. um, something like, it's just, uh, what would you call that, six inches by six inches? Sorry mm. for the imperial <laughs> thing here. And it's got a little label on there. What does that label say? It says Sphagnum Acutifolium, uh, 1865, and collected at Ranochmore. And I picked this as a sample because I've been to Ranochmore while I was in Scotland. Have you? Yes. So I somehow feel very connected to this to this particular um, herbarium sheet. And it was six little bits of sample of moss mm. there. They've all been pressed down, mm-hmm. and yet they've re- retained their structure, their colour, and their black seed pods, which is sort mm. of sticking out from the top, mm. like little lolly sticks. And it's for me, it's amazing. This is, this is 100 and, almost 150, 60 years old, mm-hmm. and it still looks like it's probably pressed during this summer. Yeah. And what, what is it about the form of this that is, uh, particularly takes your interest? I think, again, here comes the, the textile or the tailor back in. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. when I look at these species, pressed and flat as they are, they are just, yeah, they have this very textile quality. So I can already see them translated in some sort of weave or lace or, you know, to me it's just like a living lace. But like you say, it's just, oh, and this is also interesting, like... With mosses, there is like a, a rough guide, like if they can survive without water for like 80 years. I mean, this also depends on different species, obviously. But I mean, it's just this trigger of, of wanting to give them some water and kind of yeah, bring them back yeah. to life. Can um, we do that? I mean, I'm, I haven't done it yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not supposed to, but um, it's just, you know, it's just firstly, yeah, this, this textile quality um, and just, yeah. Like you say, the colour is still here. The texture is, yeah, absolutely mind-blowing. Sphagnum is the type of thing, if you go for a walk in a moorland mm. and you squelch your way through, mm-hmm. and particularly where your feet start to go down deep and you feel a little bit alarmed because mm-hmm. you might be on some boggy moor, mm-hmm. that's often sphagnum moss, isn't it? Because the, it retains water. When you exactly. pick it up, you can squeeze mm-hmm. it and all it's water like comes sponge. out. It holds water like a sponge. Yeah. And um, this is also why they create peat. So peat is like uh, is undecomposed uh, organic matters for plant material, and it takes up to a year for one millimeter of, of peat to grow. So sphagnum is one of the plants that is actually forming peat. Um, let's hang on. Let's just stop there. One millimeter yeah. a year. Yeah. So when we and then just compare it with how long. It takes us humans to destroy this, you know, Amazing. this one millimetre. I'm trying to think, because I've, I've been to Scotland and you get, like, you, you, you put peat on your fire. Mm. got to say, one of the nicest smells on earth for me. <laughs> but it, not, not entirely right, I don't think. But the, um, so to, for one millimetre, I'm trying to think how long, 
a spadeful. Yeah. I mean, goodness me, yeah. that must so be like one meter decades. is a thousand years. One meter is a thousand years. Yes. yes. Oh my god. And I've been That's to a... um to Coast Karen. It's a um a peatland conservation site in, in Wales. Tregaron, isn't it? In yes, Wales, exactly. Yes. And there are like there is peat or there is like there are pools which are up to six meters deep. And then you can imagine oh, how well old this, this peatland is. It just positions yourself in a completely different angle, isn't it? Like it just makes you realize how short the human lifespan is in co- is in comparison to to everything that nature creates. Yeah. And how, how much we need to look after it with even more care, with even more passion and, and patience. And, and I mean, this is why I'm doing this. And this is why I like to work with you because it allows me to do exactly these kind of things, to gain this knowledge, you know. And to... Yeah, well, we can all share things as well. And I probably said to you that I once um, saw a peak core taken from the moorlands in Carmarthenshire. We did a project on about them and we went down to Swansea University and they had this all this I think they had about a meter mm. of peat in there and it was amazing because they, they were showing all the different colors in there and you can sort of see where the, the little seeds of trees yes. when there were a bit more trees around yes and you can see the different species that were around about five or six thousand years you see little black bits where there was soot mm-hmm. where people were uh, probably the Romans had come mm-hmm. and they started to smelt metals yeah. i was in there it was like wow oh, there's a yeah. whole of history caught up in yeah. this you can basically recreate or reimagine past climates and just understand you know how a climate might have changed through yeah. a human impact or you know other other factors and it's like a time capsule isn't it it yeah. just kind of allows you to travel back and yeah it's simply fascinating and for me it's sort of your work as well sort of um rebounds into what we do here because we're being peak free and it's, mm. it, we, we have these big discussions uh, with other people about whether or not you should be using peat, peat or not in gardens. And I say, well, when people say, oh, you, you know, you need to use peat, I say, well, look at the whole botanic garden here. We've grown all these plants here without peat. Mm-hmm. It can be done. It can you be done. You do not need yeah. peat to grow your plants. Yeah. And when we look at the, the almost the ridiculous amount of carbon that's stored in our peat box mm-hmm. i mean we do a lot of work here on mm-hmm. conserving meadows and we're really really interested in how much carbon is stored within a meadow and it's looking like quite a significant amount but it's nothing compared to no. a peat bog no speaking of contemporary numbers like this is a study from 2022 so quite recent but contemporary peatlands store around 550 gigatons of carbon which is twice the number of, of the whole global forests, you know, and this yeah. makes you really understand the importance of, of, of preserve and, and protect these precious habitats. We, we've recently had a woman called Hannah who's been down from Aberystwyth University with us doing work into DNA barcodes. Mm. And we've been chatting to her and she'd been saying about how uh, Aberystwyth University are doing some test beds where mm-hmm. they've been putting in sphagnum. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and they're, they're trying to like kind of measure how to, how to restore maybe uh, boglands and how mm. quickly they would start to store carbon. So a lot of interesting things are being done in Wales. But I think your work, again, is really get, helping us to sort of like, you bring a lot, you bring emotion to this stuff as mm, well, I don't you? So. <laughs> and I'm I bringing in that, that ancient collection, which is probably collected from 
or I say from a more in, in, in Scotland. But it just shows the sort of um, diversity, because I know in sphagnum there's loads of different types of yeah. species, mm-hmm. aren't there, sphagnum? Yeah, and, and, and just about this collection as well, what was really, really interesting by studying all these uh, herbarium sheets, I just felt like communicating with someone in the past, you know, giving me oh. all this, this precious knowledge of, of species that might be now be on the red list of endangered species yeah. or of places which do no longer exist as, as the habitats they once were. Yeah. You know, this this kind of information is so rather special and this makes you look beyond the aesthetic qualities of a, of a herbarium yeah. and really understand the scientific purpose and, yeah, to access this data and to kind of... I used to manage a herbarium in um, a museum in Oldham in Manchester. Mm. And I mean, Oldham is a uh, a city which was known for cotton. So again, mm-hmm. a little link there. It was once a world centre for cotton, but the consequence of it being the world centre for cotton is there was massive devastation mm-hmm. of its natural mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. But in this herbarium, uh, which uh, we, we had thousands of sort of sheets collected from the eighteen seventies and eighties and eighteen nineties, and it was a record of all these different species which used to grow in Oldham which no longer grow there. And they used to write down where they were from, yeah. you know, and now it's big industrial estates or whatever. It was a really kind of an emotional sort of like looking at it and you think, oh my goodness me. Yeah. This, this is kind of what we've lost really. Exactly. But it, it also, but it allows us then when we're trying to maybe restore landscapes, get a bit of a good idea about what used to be Absolutely. there. So these things yeah. are all, because, you know, that is an actual record. Yeah. Uh, of what maybe we were hoping to aspire to restore now. Yeah, and also what is interesting then, like with having been to Finland and Austria and Scotland, to kind of try and connect my research. You know, it's this kind of triangle now where I I just try and and, and create a pattern of of all the species that exist in different habitats and and just just to understand how they have evolved. and, And like in one country, they might still be rich in other countries they might be on the on the red list of endangered species you know and just understanding yeah. different approach approaches as well in in the matter of, of, of peatland conservation is really what what makes my research project now you as an artist as well you see yourself along a kind of long road don't you into the future hmm. so it's a road where you can't quite see around the corners but you know that road's going to continue and from where you've been uh, you you also you had a special uh, uh, graduate award from Spike Island in mm. Bristol, and now you've got a new, is it a new award? Tell me what you're going to do next. That sounds really exciting. Um, well, I'm about to move to Oxford to do my masters, and I got awarded. The Oxford a, University. Yes, yeah. that's it. What college, by the way? Um, it's uh, Exeter College. Okay. Yes, so very excited. It's, yeah. it's my final few days here, but I'm excited for my new adventure. Um, and I got awarded a scholarship, so all my, my study course fees will be covered, which is a huge support. And yeah, it will be a one-year master, so this is where I'm heading next, taking this, this research project with me, and it will form the base of, of my MA work. So you've got this thread going through you, but you now have got the, the, the mosses, the sphagnum in particular, yeah. which is good. It's going to be really fascinating what you come up with. Yeah. Again, let's go back to that term, multidisciplinary artist, yeah. because you could come up with anything. It could be a film. It could be, I well, we don't know. Yeah. I, I, I've learned not to suggest to an artist yeah. what they should do because that's up to you. Exactly, uh, and and plans change so quickly. I mean, the original intention was to to 
present an exhibition this autumn here at yeah. the garden, you know. But when I was when I left in in March, I just realized this will need time, and I yeah. like the slow approach, and I like Sphagnum leading the way, leading you know, leading my work the next few years, and and I really wish to dedicate my practice and my time and efforts into the protection of these of these species and habitats. So I mean, I have actual plans of, of works I wish to to develop, but again this might change very quickly or but it is sphagnum that is like the red thread in my work now and that will inform my doing in my practice in general and as a botanic garden what we would love to do is continue our relationship with artists like yourself mm. who come and visit us and get to know us and hopefully be inspired by our elements of what we do so uh, obviously we would like to continue talking to you when you're in Oxford and it may be at some point that you do something which you might be able to bring back here Mm, I would absolutely love to I mean one thing you've done for us as well which is kind of not entirely connected to what you're doing (laughs) you've started um all that herbarium you've started to digitize it's hard hard word to say digitalize it so you I've been walking past the little room where you've been Mm. working in with all these lovely lights beaming down onto these sheets of sphagnum and you've been uh, taking photographs of them, haven't you? Yeah. So for us, with a collection like a herbarium, they're very delicate in some ways. You mm. can't just get them out and photocopy them because they go all over the place. So you need to do this special digitalization. So you've started us on that route. Yeah, I think what I want to say here is that for me, like coming here is, is a huge privilege, you know, and I wouldn't want to come here and kind of take all the knowledge and take all the things I need, but it should be a mutual exchange. You know, I want to yeah. give something back. So the digitization process was part of what I was doing anyways. And if I can support you or help you in this process, then this is wonderful. You know, it is important to give and take. And Well, you're one of several artists who we've worked with over the years, Carolina, and, uh, and some uh, artworks continue to reverberate uh, some artists come here and they they make something and it stays here mm. there's a big bee outside here a bit made out of all car parks by mm. an artist called mars mansfield uh, which was done for a cross-pollination exhibition probably about five or six years ago it's kind of stayed here that, that that's that, that's mm. that's really good there's a there's a, a lovely sculpture along our broad walk are uh, made of the royal fern yes. out of marble by glenn morris for another exhibition we did, which was looking at our DNA barcoding in the science. And that's remained here as well. So, and um, I've also got a piece of music uh, by an artist called John Howes, who again used DNA barcoding of certain plants and used the DNA barcode arrangements to make music mm, about like certain plants. Yeah, mm, it's amazing. If I find a way of doing it, I would put it on this podcast. Uh, I'm not sure if I could technically do it now, but he did a really lovely one on mm. the Welsh poppy using its DNA barcode. Wow. I love these legacies. Yeah. And uh, I like us continuing to build on things. I hope that other artists have been with us before. Maybe we haven't seen them for a few years. Come back and visit again and we start something else off again. Yeah. Because everything you do helps us then communicate uh, the issues and the enthusiasm about these different plants with our visitors so they can find a way of engaging themselves in the future yeah and you know when i came back in um in september i just felt like coming home you know i don't know why but i really yeah i really really love this place and just 
yeah, the people who work here and it just feels like a family, you know? So I'm hugely grateful. Okay, Carolina, you will be welcome back anytime and I wish you you well in Oxford. Mm -hmm. Thank Thank you you. so much. Thank you, Bruce. To end this podcast, I'm including a piece of music which I mentioned in my conversation with Carolina. It's by John Howes. It was written for a DNA barcoding project at the Botanic Garden of Wales and it uses the four letters of the DNA barcoding of, of the Welsh poppy which were allocated to four notes within a particular music scale. And in the case of this one, it is in the key of G major. It's been played on the harp by Harriet Eris. This is called Poppies in the Wind. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs>